Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 1st, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. As I told you yesterday, Christine Rosen has taken a leave of absence from the podcast until September to finish a book. And we are pleased to have in her stead today Free Beacon editor, Washington Free Beacon editor, Eliana Johnson. Hi, Eliana. Thanks for joining us. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And okay. uh, after hearing you guys bid adieu to Christine yesterday, I'm I'm honored to be filling the chair. Well, uh, we're thrilled to have you. And uh, we're going to get to a lot of stuff today. We got we got the Durham probe. We've got uh, Ukraine. We've got Biden on Ukraine. We've got Biden on everything. We've got BTS visiting. And you don't even know what BTS is visiting the Oval Office. But first, Eliana, as the editor of the Free Beacon, do you have anything you want to tell everybody that they might click over to freebeacon.com to take a gander at? I definitely do. And this is a piece that we had up yesterday. The headline is Susan Gone Wild. Pennsylvania Dem zooms into campaign event while driving video shows. And you really have to watch the video, uh, John. This is an event uh, hosted by the Jewish Democratic Council of America for their week of action. And uh, Susan Wild, who's in a swing district in Pennsylvania that was just moved, uh, good timing, it was just moved to lean Republican by the Cook Political Report. Um, she, she joins the event from her car and is like fiddling with her phone the whole time. The dog is in the back seat. Uh, it's it's great stuff. So the Beacon talked to uh, safe driving groups who had a lot to say about Susan Wilde's uh, uh, practices. She is a menace to society on the roads. So this piece by Colin Anderson, my, my, my favorite, my favorite detail is one of the events hosts asking her. Hi, everybody. Susan, is, is that you driving? <laughs> And I that am. says you're the ultimate multitasker. Yeah, I mean, so it is um it is absolutely a fantastic piece. <laughs> this is a kind of like public service tubinism, uh, we might say. Uh, so it, there is no self-abuse going on, but there is abuse of many laws uh involving uh roads and how you're supposed to behave on the road. This is the kind of delightful off-kilter piece. I would say that is both politically valuable because it is actually a story about somebody, a, a, a public servant misbehaving um, and yet um, funny and it's funny. So everybody should go to freebeacon.com and take a look at uh, Susan gone wild um, for your uh, laugh, laugh of the day. Um so not so funny, of course, I would say is and not funny at all is uh, Joe Biden announcing in an op-ed in the New York Times, though it was then leaked before the New York Times op-ed. This is the day after the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal explaining how he had just such a fantastic plan for inflation. Now he's got a fantastic plan for Ukraine that involves indeed allowing the Ukrainians to. Uh, exactly the weaponry that we he said on sunday that the ukrainians would not receive from us is that do i have that right now that, that's about right on monday the president said very definitively quote monday are, it wasn't sunday it was even it was monday monday it was Memorial today's day. wednesday okay so please we are not going to send to ukraine rocket systems that can strike into russia in his new york times op-ed published 24 hours later thereabouts he announced his intention to quote provide the Ukrainians with more advanced rocket systems and munitions that will enable them to more precisely strike key targets on the battlefield in Ukraine. What changed in the interim? Now, the White House says they received direct assurances from Kyiv that Ukrainian forces would not use these platforms to attack targets inside Russian territory. Um, this strikes me as a total fig leaf. The only reason the Ukrainian forces would be in a position to strike inside Russian territory is because the weapons we are providing them are having their intended effect. They're advancing towards the Russian border, uh, which seems to be our objective if our objective is to eject 
Russian forces from Ukraine. There are tactical and strategic rationales for executing strikes in areas where an invading force is mobilizing. I don't think we can take that off the table. That's up to them. And if reporting is accurate, Ukrainian forces all are, are already executing these sort of operations with our material, without our material. I don't know for sure, one way or the other. Certainly the uh, post-Soviet, early Soviet material that we transferred to Ukraine early in the war. Um, so Biden's decision to take long-range ordinance off the table in an extemp comment was not reflective of American policy. Or it was reflective again, or it was reflective of American policy on on Monday at three and then at four thirty, people sat down and said, what the hell, what the hell are you doing? Like, this means that Ukraine is going to lose the war. Like, this is not a good moment at which to be saying this when uh, some elements of Western opinion are starting to turn on the idea that the Russians are advancing and that the war effort uh, is turning against the Ukrainians. And you're unilaterally declaring that there will be no. American weaponry that can possibly be used that could conceivably violate the sacred border between Ukraine and Russia, which Russia itself is the violator of as it has invaded, as it had invaded Ukraine in 2014 and is invading Ukraine in 2022. But but Ukraine is not allowed to fire weapons into Russia in order to retard their advance and reverse it. just not our weapons just not because our we don't weapons. because we don't want to be seen as a co-belligerent in this conflict meanwhile <laughs> the head of u.s cyber command in an interview with sky news today says they are executing and have been executing defensive and offensive cyber operations inside ukraine aimed at russia if we are not being a co-belligerent in this conflict we're doing it rather poorly okay abe i i, I got it Noah and I were talking about this just before you, the rest of you guys got on. So here, this is, so we have Biden saying on Monday, not, we're not getting, you're not giving, you're not getting these weapons. And then Wednesday, you know, Tuesdays, like you're getting these weapons. We don't want to be seen as a belligerent. We do not want to be seen as violating Russians, Russian territorial sovereignty. He essentially says on Monday or, you know, be a party to that. And on the other hand, the head of uh, the head of uh, Cyber Command says we are, in fact, violating cyber sovereignty. We are we are doing offensive operations. Um, so what the hell? This administration, the haplessness of this administration in its expressions of policy and the way it you know, we had that story yesterday. We talked about the whole show with NBC News saying that Biden's mad because people are, you know, people make him seem inconstant. He says very firm things and then the administration walks them back. These two op-eds are, are total walkbacks, the one in the journal and the one today, walkbacks of things Biden himself said under Biden's own signature. Is he mad that they were published? Maybe he doesn't know they were published. We don't well, even know what he knows, except I, I do think that the his op ed in The Times today was aimed at um, still broadcasting this idea that the U.S. isn't technically a belligerent uh, here. I mean, well, he, we're he, not a belligerent. Right. I mean, I, I, what do we need to broadcast that we're I, well, not be, a belligerent? We're not a belligerent. We're supporting but, one side against the other in a war, but we're not in the war. But this was a point that I think you made yesterday, John, that that he that Biden keeps sort of alerting Putin to what we're not doing and not willing to do. And I, and and even though we are now sending the, the long range weaponry, um, the, the, the 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 I think the ultimate point of to, of of this op ed today was was to kind of reassure the Kremlin on some level. Um, but yeah, the administration has not spoken in one voice throughout this uh, on any number of issues, even out, outside of this. So when Biden complains that his own people are walking back his comments, um, obviously it's insincere because he walks back his own comments. Eliana, I would like, honestly, I don't like Biden. I never liked Biden. I didn't like Biden in 1986 when I first met him at an editorial board lunch at the Washington Times. And somebody said, hey, Senator Biden, uh, what's on the legislative agenda for, you know, uh, for the next couple of months? And then he opened his mouth and 45 minutes later, he closed his mouth. That was my first experience of Joe Biden. Logorrheic psychosis of a sort that I rarely witnessed. So that is 30, you know, 36 years ago. So I've never been a fan, but I 
would like, I wanted, I would have liked to have supported Biden and given him credit for a resolute behavior on Ukraine, not giving in to the impulse to run away, doing what he can with NATO, pushing forward. And he just makes it impossible even to give him credit for what has happened thus far because he doesn't want to take it and he wants to say he's not doing the good things that it looks like he's doing we're not really doing so at some point you have to say okay you must not really want us to be doing them and i'm speaking as somebody who would have wanted to say look in this area he was terrible in afghanistan this was bad that was bad in this area you got to give him credit like i have no problem with doing that when a president does something that I think he deserves credit for. Well, I think there are a couple things going on here. We've said the administration, but in terms of the statements or misstatements, as the case may be, we're talking about Biden. And this is hardly an isolated incident when the president goes out and says something that is not reflective of administration policy or his aides don't think it is. And then they frantically try to walk it back. Wasn't it just last week or the week before that he said unequivocally that uh, we would militarily defend Taiwan and blew up the policy of strategic ambiguity? Um, And I don't have the others on the top of my head, but there's like 15 uh, foreign policy blunders uh, or misstatements uh, that Biden has uh, where his aides then frantically tried to climb them back or have to clean them up. Um, And so it seems to me like the NBC News article yesterday is Biden has at the at the bottom of it has to be angry at himself. Um, for not being able to speak uh, with clarity. But on Ukraine, it seems to me, uh, I tell the reporters at the Beacon that bad writing is a reflection of bad thought. You know, unclear writing is uh, unclear thought. And in the case of Biden, like unclear statements are a reflection of unclear policy. And is are any of us here able to say like, what is the administration's policy toward Ukraine? And uh, Biden's unclear statements from, from the podium or messy statements from the fo- podium are a reflection of like unclear policy and unclear policy goals. I, I, to, I, to be fair to Joe Biden, I think his thoughts are rather clear and he's attempting to achieve something akin to marrying U.S. policy with his his desires, aspirations and moral sentiments. One of the walkbacks of which he was a part was one where he said extemporaneously, Vladimir Putin can't remain in power. Um, he was involved in, according to the Washington Post, workshopping and uh, a statement that walked that back um, because it's not US policy to seek regime change and it's even rather dangerous to suggest as much. And yet that is a moral sentiment. That is a rational sentiment, um, one that is defensible on its face, but is a contradiction of US policy. Likewise, we would like to defend Taiwan's sovereignty against a Chinese invasion if, if that were to occur, but it would be a violation of law established by Congress. The US-Taiwan Relations Act is what governs our foreign policy. So when Joe Biden says three separate occasions that we would come to Taiwan's defense, he's saying something that he wishes were true, that we all probably wish would be true but it's not something that he can just extemporaneously say. I'm not sure why you say that that's clear. I mean, it, 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 it would clear be clear. Clear in his own head. Well, I, maybe. But, but no, but there's a category of things you want. There's a category of things we can and should do. And then there's a category of things you, we, we should not say. Um, he's got them all jumbled together. I think that's a very good way of putting it. In other words, the effective policy of the United States is that we accept that Taiwan is a separate country from China. And of course, it is a separate country from China. It's one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It's a very significant trading partner. Um, uh, it's been in existence for you know one year less than Israel uh, as, a, as, a, as an entirely independent entity. And it is a democracy. So of course, we are not going to let it sink under the ocean. However, that is not our policy that as as Noah indicates that we 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 have had a disingenuous policy toward Taiwan pretty much since you know since the passage of that of the act uh similarly we had a disingenuous policy in reverse for many decades with the Soviet Union and the captive nations of Latvia Lithuania and Estonia which we treated as though 
they were not suborned by the Soviet Union. Theoretically, there was legislation. We accepted passports from them. They had currency that we that we literally said was legitimate currency, even though there were there was no Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Uh, but we accepted their existence because that was how we were were dealing with the fact that the Soviet Union had swallowed up these three independent countries and we were not going to recognize that. Similarly, we have this disingenuous policy in reverse with Taiwan, a country that is uh, strong and prosperous and free. And we're saying we sort of accept that it isn't really an independent nation, even though, of course, it's an independent nation. We think it's an independent nation. So it's so, you know, walking those tightropes, that is like diplomacy 101. That is like what you're supposed to be able to do if you're getting into some senior position in, in an administration or being a policymaker in the U.S. government. Governments have to play these weird games of footsie all the time. And it's always embarrassing. It's always something that, you know, if you want to play gotcha, you sort of like ask a president or a secretary of state an embarrassing question that exposes the hypocrisy of these kinds of approaches. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist and that we don't continue with them. Biden is somehow reading the stage directions or saying, yes, we will defend Taiwan. And of course, I think we would defend Taiwan, although maybe we wouldn't. Like, I mean, what do you well, do I if mean, the Soviets, if, if, the, if the Chinese actually like send a million people to invade the island of Taiwan? You know, somehow magically they they manifest people across the sea to invade Taiwan. What would we do? Like, I don't know what we would do. But on the other hand, of course, absent that, absent some in fantastic science fictional invasion that was almost immediately successful of course we would do whatever we could not only to stop it but to but to say we would not allow this to stand i mean we've had settlements with you with taiwan that um have guided american relations there's this thing called the third communique which was upended by congress because congress mandated arms sales to taiwan um in order to preserve transit through the uh the strait in the south china sea uh, america's support for tai uh, taipei's independence sort of renders strategic ambiguity dead and gone. The one China policy is dead and gone and all but letter. So reading the stage directions is increasingly script. I mean, it can be. It's also like you don't you don't do it unilaterally for no purpose to get no profit out of it. I mean, that's that's the weird part. Like you can understand sometimes things happen and policy changes or or there is an admission that policy is no longer sensible. Like in 2002, when Christopher Hill acknowledged that the, that North Korea was a nuclear nation, it had been American policy to pretend that North Korea was not a nuclear nation because we were trying to buy it, we were trying to bribe it out of being such. And so we, they kept saying, oh, we're about to do this. And then we would send them a lot of money through the UN or through the food aid program or something like that. We did this five or six times from the late 1980s into the early 2000s. And then finally we said, to hell with it. It's a nuclear nation. And that means, you know, we are going to have to face it as such and not continue to. And, and the initial response of the world was, what are you doing? Why are you saying this? Why are you going public, U.S. government, with the idea that this is that North Korea now has to be counted a nation with nuclear weapons? Like you're 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 screwing everything up, you know. So there's no there's no good way around this. But what did what we got out of that was, uh, you know, this is post 9-11. We're not bullshitting about about weapons of mass destruction anymore. We're not going to pretend that North Korea doesn't have them and we're going to do what we can to stop any nation that thinks that it can blackmail us with nuclear weapons. And that was that was why we did that. Biden seems to be doing these things for no purpose. I mean, if the purpose, how can he walk back saying this man should not be in power by then publishing an op-ed in which he says, we, we don't, you know, we don't seek to remove him from power. He said he shouldn't be in power. He's doing it. Like, what is he, what, what, what chip, you know, what chess piece is he moving? 
what what chip is he playing in a game of craps? I don't, you know, I don't get it. Except, of course, for the more most obvious, the Occam's razor. I was going to say, uh, is it yes. untoward to to offer that explanation, John? <laughs> I, I we look go we've done for it many times it. in the past. Go ahead. It's, yeah, we don't we don't ignore the uh, elephant in the room. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I, I'm just. I mean, it's obvious that he is, you know, dementia is playing a role in this and that he is not as disciplined in what he says as he should be. I, I would I would caution against using the word dementia because dementia actually is a is a real is a is a old age. Right. We can say old age. We could even say. Cognitive decline. Dementia is a very is actually a specific thing that happens in the brain. We have no idea what's going on, but is there cognitive decline there? Of course, there's cognitive decline there. But I mean, and by the way, every I have it. I have it. I'm 61. I already have cognitive decline from where I was at 40. I'm I'm not. I'm willing to admit it. We all remember what I had for early yesterday. But look, I'm not a, an MD and I'm not <laughs> diagnosing him from afar. Um, but there's also a case that the anger and frustration is not unrelated to this. I mean, it's also probably likely that Joe Biden isn't angry or frustrated with his staff. That he just that the White House wants you to think that. I suppose well, that means that the White Especially House staff is involved in walking back his own statements. Staff. Yeah, which he is. Uh, what are you to make of this besides it's gaming the, the refs? See, I got something else. I got another. Th- so he was a senator for many years and then he was vice president. And basically what he said didn't matter. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. It's like he could expostulate on anything and, you know, get a friendly reporter in or whoever and just, you know, go to a luncheon or, you know, speak before and say whatever he wanted to say about anything. I think that we should split Afghanistan into three, split Iraq into three. We should do this. We should do that. I did this. I have a friend. My friend did this. I was involved in that. Nobody paid any attention because what a senator says that's outside of his legislative acts is not important. And what a vice president says is not important. He's now president. He has the habits of a lifetime, which is that he blathers and blathers and blathers and says whatever comes into his fool head. And you can't do that as president. And that's where the cognitive. And so then he's angry because people now pay attention to what he says. And then people go, wait, wait, is it is the policy that we we, we, we have a one China policy or we don't have a one China policy? He's like, why, why are you asking me this? I spent 40 years talking like this and nobody nobody said boo. Like when he screamed at Caitlin Collins um, of CNN last year uh, in Europe. I can't even remember what question she asked him, but it wasn't anything particularly challenging. And then he kind of like wagged his finger and kind of screamed at her from the podium because it's like, why are you holding me accountable for, for the words that I'm speaking? No one's ever done that to me before. Uh, John, I mean, he and they obviously know they have a problem because I, I can't remember the time, the last time that he sat for an interview. 114 days, Eliana. I've I'm actually, glad. I'm glad we have he's been counting because, um, okay, there's a lot of reasons that the president wouldn't sit for an interview, but if they thought that he was an asset, they would be sitting him for interviews. So at the very least, they don't think he's value add. Um, okay. And at worst, they think that there's a lot of harm he can do in these interviews. And in fact, when they did send him out on Afghanistan, uh, they sat him down with George Stephanopoulos, I think it was. He did a lot of damage. So you can tell. Um, who knows if it's Biden making the decisions or the staffer is just not booking him on the interviews, um, that this is a widespread feeling in the White House. Um. So my friend Mark Halperin, whom I've mentioned before, has a daily newsletter, which is fantastic. Um, I strongly commend it to you, uh, Wide World of News. And every week or so, or every couple of weeks, he writes a fake memo from Ron Klain. 
to Biden. Uh, and this is one of his ways of gathering, of sort of like ha- collecting stories he wants to highlight and saying, uh, Mr. President, you really should read this. Uh, uh, so he begins as follows this morning. Halpern in the voice of White House Chief Staff Ron Klain. People will not shut up about this NBC News story from Tuesday that says, we're adrift, you're angry, and I'm leaving. Well, brace yourself, Mr. President, because today is already worse. Worse. A few months ago, you were, I say, respectfully wrong when you said our administration had the most leaking and most hostile press coverage of any White House in modern history. You might be right now. I can't sugarcoat anything for you at this point. Then Mark runs the chart of Biden's job approval, uh, his job approval today, 14.4, uh, a gap, of, a disapproval gap of 14.4, 40.4% approved, 54.8% disapprove. Gallup's economic confidence index measured minus 45 in May, the lowest reading in Gallup's trend during the coronavirus pandemic, and likely the lowest confidence had been since the tail end of the Great Recession in early 2009. He then quotes a Washington Post story pointing out that an NBC News poll released earlier this month found that 33% of Americans approve of Biden's handling of the economy, while 23% approve of his handling of the cost of living. And 68% said they approve of Biden, disapprove of Biden's handling of inflation compared with 28% who approve. Um, Wall Street Journal then points out that some administration of, uh, officials have expressed frustration with their message around inflation. Some officials have said they should publicly accept that the administration's stimulus contributed to higher prices while arguing that such steps were worthwhile, while others have been opposed to making such concessions. I'd like to know which officials say we should say, yes, we caused inflation, but, you know, it was good. Try to explain why it's actually good for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good for you. Uh, And a couple of other things. So um, basically, uh, when you when you and then he concludes with the following Halperin in the voice of claim five hard truths. One, if you think a job approval ratings can't go any lower, think again. If we don't deliver on student loan debt or inflation, or if we try to deal with gas prices by embracing fossil fuel production or by lowering emission standards more, we will lose enough progressive support to put your numbers well below 40. If you think you have sway on Capitol Hill on guns, mini build back better, the competitiveness bill or anything else pending, think again. If you think you're standing with the gang of 500, that's whom he that's that's Halpern's term for sort of like Washington conventional opinion. And the dominant media is bad. You should know that it is perhaps even worse with corporate chiefs. And um, if you think you know how history will record your presidency, you need to think about this sentence. Quote, the president who downplayed the prospects of inflation, exacerbated it, then did nothing effective about it and but blamed others before ushering in a recession that opened the door to Donald Trump's return to the White House. So I'd add one. Yeah. What if the war in Ukraine does take a dramatic turn for the worse? I mean, that that that's that's the one thing that that John, as you said, you'd, you'd even like to give him some credit for for accomplishing something on. Well, that's an interesting question. Do we think that uh, that um, Russian uh, uh, Russian success will be deemed a Biden failure? Okay, well, hang on. We got to pull this back because the domestic press is usually a week or two weeks behind events on the ground. So right now, the American press is catching up to offensive operations in the Donbass led by Russia, which have been successful. Um, and paired, coupled with Ukrainian strategic retreats around a series of towns culminating with this advance on Severodonetsk, which is a big city in, in north of Donetsk territory, Donetsk Oblast. Um, but what they haven't caught up with is Ukrainian counteroffensives around Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Ukraine is uh, concentrating its forces around this city, which was occupied in the first week, two weeks of the war, uh, and has been subsequently... Um, the scene of unrest and insurrection, and now prolonged serious advances to try to retake the city. Um, with the introduction of these long-range weapons, I don't know what kind of effect they'll have, but they certainly allow Ukraine to do something that it's been begging to do, which is to attack uh, Russian t- tanks and positions that are dug in well outside the range of Ukrainian ordnance right now. Um, and that could certainly have its intended effect. I think we've seen 
over the course of this war, Western armaments have had their intended effect. They've beat back the Russian advance right. on three separate fronts. And that is now, why we're now focusing on right. the fourth and last front. And now this is because you because Ukraine is taking very serious casualties and they've concentrated their forces in a very narrow area and are making advances, albeit on a, a small front. Now it's they're they're finally going to win. We I mean, Moscow is finally going to win. Yes, correct. Right. Okay. They can't. So, or, nobody can. The problem is everybody talks themselves into the idea that we can't articulate or even conceive of what Ukrainian victory looks like. But it's increasingly difficult to articulate or see what Russian victory looks like. Right. Okay. So here's what's interesting. So what you said is the you know so the so now there is pessimism, and now there is worry that the turn toward Moscow has come, and then the people who really watch this granularly. Because I, you know, I, 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 I don't have a dog in this fight in that sense, but you know, the people at the our friend Fred Kagan and his Institute for the Study of War, Fred Kagan, a commentary contributor and uh, longtime ally, whatever, have, runs this uh, Institute for the Study of War with his wife Kim, and they, and they have been doing this incredibly granular work on the war since it started, and according to them, their most recent document. Moscow's concentration on, see, on seizing Sverdonetsk and Donbass continues to create vulnerabilities for Russia in Ukraine's vital Kherson Oblast, as you said, Noah, where Ukrainian counteroffensives continue. Kherson is critical terrain because it is the only area of Ukraine in which Russian forces hold ground on the west bank of the Dnipro River, which is essentially the the border uh, in the east between uh, between Russia and Ukraine. If Russia is able to retain a strong lodgement in Kherson while fighting, when fighting stops, it will be in a very strong position from which to launch a future invasion. If Ukraine regains Kherson, on the other hand, Ukraine will be in a much stronger position to defend itself against future Russian attack. This strategic calculus should, in principle, lead Russia to allocate sufficient combat power to hold Kherson. But Putin has chosen instead to concentrate all the forces and resources that can be scraped together in a desperate and bloody push to seize areas of eastern Ukraine that will give him largely symbolic gains. And not so they are saying that Putin's made another mistake by focusing on Severodonetsk and that the Ukrainian leadership they go on has apparently wisely avoided matching Putin's mistaken prioritization. They want Kherson. They they are pushing hard on Kherson. And now that the Americans are going, we are going to provide them with these with these um, missiles. Uh, that task will be made easier because the whole point about these missiles is they are incredibly accurate. They are they are wildly accurate. You basically drive them on a truck. You put them on the truck, you fire them. They are, they are, they, they will go exactly where you want them to hundred percent of the time you have, you have the proper target and you are within 120 miles and you can knock out whatever you need to knock out whenever you need to knock it out. That is, that is an incredible advance in war. We used it in, we used it in Iraq against the Islamic state. We use it in Afghanistan and we are now going to allow them to use this, use this and the destructive possibilities here four of the Russian advance and the Russian positions are very, very high. So just as everybody is getting pessimistic, the people, as I say, who watch this on, an, uh, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis and who were very pessimistic when the war started, I would say, the Institute for the Study of War. I mean, they were like, we, we, we are celebratory of the heroism of the Ukrainian people. Um, but obviously they're facing this overwhelming, you know, superiority. And then the Russian tanks got ground down in the mud. And if these casualty figures are anywhere near right about the Russians, the Russians have suffered a death toll in the first in these three months that dwarfs anything that we've seen. The United States has seen since like practically since the Civil War. I mean, they've supposedly lost 30, 35,000 men. We lost. 58,000 in Vietnam in 12 years. So I, I, hey. I will give voice to some pessimism. Okay. Despite that. Um, and I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, um, but it certainly concerns me. If 
Putin digs in in the east with an eye toward holding it when the dust settles, his gains will not be purely symbolic. He will have a big chunk of energy-rich territory. Um, that's terrible. That's it? That's it, okay, yeah. Well, so okay, I'll but if you look that. at the map, that can, we, can, can I just say before sure. you qualify that? Sure. Everybody should go look at the map on the Institute right. for the Study of Wars website. So you can see the size of Ukraine, the general size of Ukraine, where Kiev is, where, of course, they failed and then pulled back from, and see where the war is actually going on. It is in a sliver of a sliver of Ukraine. It is in one fifteenth of the territorial size of Ukraine, where the where the where the fight, including in parts of Ukraine that Russia had already taken control of, meaning Crimea and the Donbas, have had control of effectively for almost eight years. So it's three months in, and they're now fighting effectively, kind of to defend and push a little further than they already had. And it's pretty striking to look at because while the Ukrainians haven't succeeded in sort of like, I mean, the Ukrainians succeeded in pushing them out of their offensive against the capital. The Ukrainians don't want to take territory in, in Russia. So it's not like you can look at a map and say, oh, look, I mean, the Russians have gone here, but Ukraine has gone there. They're just trying to hold the line and push them back. And they have in some fundamental sense because the the again maybe they're focusing on energy rich areas well okay, that's, Putin that's, has for years you know right. he, that's yeah. he's been consolidating energy resources in the region for years all right well uh, somebody who does focus on this sort of thing rather granularly the you in the area you're talking about in eastern ukraine is sitting on one of the largest natural gas reserves in the planet it's like one trillion cubic meters of natural gas down there and it's been the great white whale of the west for decades we have wanted to develop this for a very long time, well before the 2014 invasion. And it is cost prohibitive and technologically difficult to the point where I mean, it would cost like roughly 50 billion US dollars to develop this deposit and bring energy to market 15 years later using advanced hydraulic fracturing techniques. Um, we've been trying to do that. We can't. Russia can do it. I mean, it's a sort of thing that's like a, it's a, it's a post hoc rationale for what is otherwise a strategically incomprehensible. But why uh, can't approach. we do it? Just because it's expensive? Yeah, it's expensive. It's, like it's, it's technologically difficult. The government isn't cooperative. Uh, there's a million obstacles in the road. And we've been talking about this for, for a decade, at least as long as I've been paying attention. Well, I mean, there, I will are few, say, go ahead, sorry. there are fewer obstacles if it's yours. I mean, no, no, no. The obstacles are financial and logistical. It's not just, it's not just, it is, these are not, these are not like gimme deposits it's a huge amount of oil it's a huge amount of natural gas natural gas yeah but like when we went into pennsylvania into the marcellus shale and got that stuff out it just fell off the walls it it's just sitting there 10 feet deep falling off the walls like it took us it took no time to extract it it was an amazing thing the, the 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 deeper you get into this story of hydro what hydraulic fracturing can do and all of that the as the deposits go deeper and deeper like any oil stuff like extracting it gets more and more and more expensive if oil is at three hundred dollars a barrel then doing it is good if oil you know one of the things about fracking and the natural gas that we've gotten from fracking is it has put wild not you wouldn't know it from gas prices right now but it's put wild downward pressure of course on the cost of gas and natural you know and uh, of gas and so it's less and less valuable to extract it because your gain it's going to cost too much and you're not going to get enough return from it so you know israel's going through this now which is that you know it's got this huge field it's taken a long time for it to possibly exploit this field and it all depends on when you know on when this stuff actually starts moving because if it moves at a time when it's when gas is really expensive and they can really make up their deficit and how much it would cost them to do the infrastructure work to pull it out then great and if it isn't they'll go broke you know and, and i mean I, <clears throat> if you just watch what moscow is doing 
replacing Ukrainian road signs, flying the Soviet victory banner, renaming towns, exfiltrating citizens to camps to re-educate them. It's pretty clear that they're not after energy deposits here. They're after sovereign territory that they want to reintegrate into Moscow, into Moscow's orbit, or in the Russian Federation proper. That's what they want. They're not looking for some sort of a strategic gain. This is about prestige. Anyway, but pessimism is warranted. Like, there's no reason. Pessimism is always warranted, and no one should get, you know, hepped up on the idea that everything is going to go to and Putin is, you know, and Putin's got cancer and and he's 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 demented and this is all stupid. Like, uh, David French has the best account, pessimistic account on his uh, uh, dispatch column yesterday, which is like, look, you know, the Russians know Russian Russian self understanding in war is that they can outweigh anybody. And they'll they'll they, they know war takes a long time. They'll grind it out. They'll grind it down. That's the mythos of Stalingrad, and that's the mythos of how they won against Napoleon. And it's it, this is this is what they know. I mean, it's a it's a it's a, it, and the point is very strong. Of course, they did bug out of Afghanistan after ten. I mean, it's not like their most recent military adventurism, uh, except for except of course for Crimea and the Donbass. Um, didn't lead to, you know, a complete humiliation and disaster. So saying that, you know, they they could look, jump back over that 80 years or 200 years <laughs> to, to Napoleon's conquest, you know, effort uh, effort at uh, taking Moscow and, and, and controlling Russia. That may be a little uh, silly, but it is true that they're obviously willing to suffer vastly greater casualties than than we you know, than than we are, than the West, than 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 the Democratic West is. All right, I got to stop for a minute and talk to you about David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths. David, friend of this podcast, has a fantastic podcast on National Review. You should listen to called Capital Matters. I believe it's called Capital Matters. Uh, if I've got that wrong, I will fix it on the next podcast. Um, uh, Eliana, by the way, also has a great podcast. Everybody should listen to. I'm going to, I'm interrupting an ad to sell Eliana's podcast, Ink Stained Wretches, out every Thank Friday you. with Chris Starwalt. Uh, if you, uh, if you love press bashing, uh, the, the dynamic on the show is uh, Eliana bashes the press and Chris goes, oh, the press isn't so bad. And then they have a hilarious exchange between them, between the uh, Minnesota Jew and the uh, West Virginia um, Goy. Uh, 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 Highly literate, uh, very funny, ink-stained wretches. Now let's get back to David Bonson and his There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, the book that now more than ever helps explain the connection between ordered liberty, economic freedom, uh, and the good working order of human flourishing and how the three all connect uh, with daily entries about... uh, that you could sort of literally read one a day so that you can understand the most basic to the most sophisticated economic concepts backed up by great quotes from theologians, economists, great thinkers. Um, It is a clarifying and revivifying book by a uh, a guy who's got skin in the game, three and a half billion dollars under management at his firm, the Bonson Group. So not only does he know where if he speaks, he brings a real philosophical and economic understanding to his own investing that has proved spectacularly successful. And that is why you should take him more seriously than you would me if I were publishing a book on economic theory. So that's David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, his book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever get you your, wherever you get your fine podcasts. All right. Uh, uh, so, uh, John Durham, uh, three years investigating, uh, the question of who might have attempted to interfere improperly with the Trump campaign in 2016, brought an indictment of an election lawyer, uh, named Sussman, uh, one count of lying to the FBI, uh, because he brought information to the FBI about, uh, this bank, um, the Alta bank, but told the FBI, but the allegation was that he had told the FBI that he was going to them as a private citizen, whereas in fact, he was in the employ of the Clinton campaign, indicted Sussman, 
went to trial, two week trial, jury came back after a relatively brief uh, jury impanelment and um, acquitted him on the one charge on the grounds that there was a single witness, uh, Baker, uh, the GC of the FBI, now work, who now works at Twitter, apparently, uh, who did not, uh, whose accounts of this varied. And uh, uh, how devastating is this to the, I mean, the, there are two things. One is, what does this mean? The second is, do, do the things that came out at trial about the extent to which the Hillary Clinton campaign was trying to get out a story that is apparently un- utterly without foundation about Trump being controlled by this Russian bank or this bank. Uh, does that matter? Or does the fact that Sussman was acquitted completely blow any possibility that the world will accept the case that the Clinton campaign was behaving in an untoward fashion against the, Cl- the Trump campaign? Eliana, what's, what's your take? I think that Sussman's acquittal is going to and already has allowed the mainstream media to say, look, there was obviously nothing to see here from the beginning. Uh, They're equating Durham and Mueller. Well, the right says, look, Mueller found nothing. There was nothing to see there because he didn't indict anyone. And then like there's the caveat. Well, of course, we know like Mother Mueller found all this bad stuff. And, you know, uh, but basically to say, um, there was nothing to see here either way. I think it's like pretty devastating to uh, to Durham because he cannot force the mainstream to pay attention to what he found. Of course, we know, uh, you know, those of us talking on his podcast that he found a lot of devastating stuff, but it is not going to get the attention it deserves because of this. And um, Andy McCarthy over at National Review has been my guide to all of this um, because he was a federal prosecutor. And I think um, Andy's view, and he has an op-ed in the New York Post today that I any that everybody should read was that Durham made a huge mistake in hanging his case or building a case around the idea that um, the FBI was tricked or lied to by Sussman as opposed to um, a Sussman ally in uh, purveying, you know, what they that they knew exactly who Sussman was and they worked hand in glove with Sussman to go after Trump and that that was a mistake on Durham's part. And I, I share Andy's view on that. Okay. Everyone's narratives about this and who who consume politics for a living or for entertainment are completely baseless and predicated on this weird persecution complex that you have to have if you talk about politics. The Mueller probe didn't come up with nothing. It got like six or seven convictions. The Durham probe didn't come up with nothing. It got a guilty plea. They screwed up a prosecution here, but not because the evidence wasn't with them. They had this text message that apparently couldn't be entered into evidence, which suggested that he was this targeted assessment was target of this investigation did, in fact, lie to an FBI agent. But he didn't lie precisely what he was on trial for. Right. So there's a very good piece that lays this out. Three paragraph piece by Isaac Short, National Review, that says that Durham is the villain here because Durham screwed up his own prosecution. Sussman, there was a there was a smoking gun. It was a text message between Sussman and Baker. Uh, Baker being the FBI guy saying, can I come and talk to you? I'm coming as a private citizen. But that apparently that uh, that text message only emerged. I don't know, at some point at which it was it no could, longer. It wasn't entered. Yeah, it couldn't be entered into evidence. It wasn't part yeah. of the indictment. So you so, have all so these. As Shore okay, says, like, well, you have all these MAGA friendly the types who are now saying, oh, this is there's this two, two tracks of justice in this country. And yeah. just so put upon yeah. as opposed to Hanlon's razor, which is this was an, incomp- an act of incompetence. You were underserved by this act of incompetence. But there is no grand conspiracy here. Uh, I get I get the existence of the text message, but um Baker and the FBI, these people were not born yesterday. You know, they knew who Sussman was. Right. And they knew Baker, that's where what he Baker was coming says. from on this. I come on. Right. But that's what Baker says. But he apparently said enough other stuff. Baker said, I knew that he worked for Clinton. So he came to us and I was like, you know, and apparently 
the interesting, the, the, the relevant detail in terms of a narrative, if you want like an honest accounting of what was going on here is that there was real division in the Clinton camp about whether to go to the FBI with this information, because if it goes into the FBI, maybe it goes into the black hole of the FBI takes on the case and then everything shuts down and goes quiet because they actually need to investigate it, as opposed to finding Frankie Four just happening to sit there and you just feed him all this stuff and then he creates the the Alta Bank preposterous Alta Bank conspiracy Alpha article. Alpha Bank. Excuse me, Alpha Bank. I'm sorry. The Alpha Bank I cons- was a finalist for an Alpha Bank fellowship in 2010. Congratulations, you know, everybody's a winner. Everyone's a winner. Even if, if you're a finalist, you're a winner. And, you know, if the winner had not been able to fulfill her duties, you could have been Miss Miss Alpha Bank. I mean, I mean, guys, I'm just going to say when yeah. I approach the FBI um, in the next presidential ele- election and I'm like, look, I, I am not representing the Washington Free Beacon. Uh, this is not political at all. But I have some information on Joe Biden that uh, I'm just, you know, they're going to know where I'm coming from. I'm just saying, just saying they're, they're um, going to. I'm now going to go on my rant about special prosecutors. Special prosecutors are terrible. They, they now exist. They, they are terrible because they create a condition in which a person has a vested interest in bringing indictments rather than investigating something impartially. That is actually why we all understand that is why Durham was hired by Bill Barr. To be fair to Bill Barr, Bill Barr chose a guy of absolutely sterling reputation who wasn't going to go with garbage nonsense like Lawrence Walsh or others. Like he knew that he was plotting and serious and determined and all of that. And yet, to spend three years and come up with these two cases, three years, like this is not the way things are supposed to be. Prosecutors aren't supposed to go in search of a crime and f- that the, the temptation to do, to be that person, to be Javert and just like want to find Jean Valjean guilty of whatever it is that he might have done is too great. You don't stick an investigator onto an individual person or an individual case because you are therefore saying, we presume that something illegal went on here and and all bets are off. I mean, the behavior of the Mueller probe, what it did to, to, you know, some of those people with these 14, you know, who ended up with, you know, cooperating George Papadopoulos and getting like a 14-day prison sentence for having lied on the US 1001 swearing form like that's just disgusting like you they're ruining people's lives you know i i i hold no brief for sussman i'm sure he's a sleaze but what do i know but you know this guy had the full weight of 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 a of a prosecutor come down on him he had to quit his job you know he's been out of work for a year and a half he has to defend himself again like i don't i'm sure you know, he his politics are horrible compared to, you know, what I like. And he's on the side of people I don't like and all of that. But nobody should go through, you know, the relentlessness of a prosecution, the purpose of which is to find I mean, to even to indict someone on the grounds that he had a meeting with the FBI and he said, I'm here as a private citizen, but he was actually working for the Clinton campaign. I mean, if I were on that, I don't know what if I were on that jury, I probably would have voted to acquit. I would have said this is malfeasance. This is you're bringing you're taking a, a you know a, a sledgehammer to hit an ant with. That's not appropriate. Really, I don't well, I don't agree with that point. Them. He didn't he didn't do them. Well, that's Elian, and that's the other thing. It's like they all knew. Guilty yeah, and then he was right. charged with. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's a it's a pretty serious situation if you have a representative of a campaign going to the FBI claiming that that the. The, the person who won the presidency was in was in collusion with the with, no, with that the was crime before, and saying that was in writing that I am won. not representing my client. Yeah. When you are. In a conversation with an FBI agent. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I there know. is such a thing as prosecutor. Then does somebody deserve to go to prison for saying that to an FBI agent? Well, that's a Maybe. different question. That's a very different question. But from that's what the, that's what the jury. I'm sorry. That is what the jury is being asked. The jury is being asked. Do they do prove beyond the shadow of, you know, beyond reasonable doubt that X happened? And then B, the implicit jury nullification is and that jury said this in these post interviews. Did this really rise to the level of something that this jury should even have been hearing? The jury said, I don't think we, you know, two jurors told reporters, I don't think we should have been doing this. That's also something that needs to be taken into account when you're a prosecutor. Is like, it really? OK, go ahead. Grappling with, I think, is the teaming up of Sussman with the machinery of federal law enforcement, Sussman teaming up with the FBI that then sicked its resources on a presidential campaign to kneecap one candidate and empower another. Like that is the issue. And it seems to me that Durham like missed the ball. Dropped By the, the way, ball. I fully expect Magaland to turn on Durham now. Um, well, I mean, or I mean, I think, look, who knows? Who knows? Durham's good. Durham's a, who the hell knows? Like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, right. But there's been so much fevered right. talk about how this is going to go all the way to the okay. top. This is going to end up with, you know, Hillary behind bars or something. Right. You know? Listen, I just want to having said what I said, I want to point out that we have published tens of thousands of words in commentary by Eli Lake on the depredations of of the prosec of the of the illegitimate prosecutions of Carter Page and George Papadopoulos and others, and uh, and the the mishandling of these cases and the untoward and 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 repulsive behavior of the Clinton campaign uh, in the run up to the election. So I'm just saying that this there is something about the dynamic of a of a special prosecutor going after one person on a charge that is ancillary to the question, uh, which is, did he lie to an FBI agent? Now, you can then say that they didn't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt because Baker said very different uh, other things, and they didn't prove it to the jury's satisfaction. And it wasn't even Hillary Clinton is being indicted because she said, Take this to the FBI. I guess that's your sort of Andy McCarthy point. Hillary Clinton, according to testimony in this case, I can't remember who was who was it, Jake Sullivan. I mean, I can't. Somebody said Hillary said, yes, take it to the FBI. Robbie Mook, her campaign. Manager. Robbie Mook. Thank you. OK, so Robbie Mook said, take it to the FBI. So if you indict Hillary Clinton on the grounds that she's saying, take it to the FBI. But you know what? That wouldn't have worked either because Guess what? Politics ain't beanbag and opposition research and trying to use opposition research as a lever and a weapon against uh, against your enemy and opponent. That is like politics 101. And it's not as though Trump wasn't walking around saying Hillary Clinton should be indicted and go to jail at the same time that she was. So it wouldn't even have worked. Like, because you would have had to say, was she doing something illegal by 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 sending no, somebody mal- to the FBI? malfeasance is on the part of the FBI. Right. So the so so yeah. So Baker should be indicted, is what you're saying, not Baker. I don't, I mean, I don't know who in the FBI, but yeah. it's uh, you know for for attorneys acting on behalf of the campaign, there are issues. Um, you know, for lawyers, and then um, and then the people at the FBI, you know, abuse their authority. Right. Well, and that is that is the major subject of Eli Lake's writing for us is the unbelievable misbehavior of the FBI, you know, uh, really beginning with the with the start of the crossfire hurricane investigation in July of 2016, which, you know, which uh, and that story is still being told. I and by say. the way, people have been fired over there. Like uh, Peter Strzok says, he says he was, you know, he shouldn't have been. And it was a it's a disgrace that he was. But they have fired people over this. Eliana Johnson, editor of The Washington Free Beacon, co-host of Ink Stained Wretches out every Friday morning. Go subscribe at Apple Podcasts uh, co- with his with her co-host, uh, Chris Starwalt, commentary contributor, hilarious guy, delightful podcast. 
Eliana is the curmudgeon and Chris is the sunbeam. Uh, so it's a funny dynamic. And it's, a, it's a delightful show. We'll be back uh, tomorrow. I think Matt Continetti will be joining us then. So uh, who actually, of course, was Eliana's predecessor as editor of the Speaking Washington of curmudgeons. Is he a curmudgeon? I don't think that's quite the right description. He's uh, he's too placid to be a curmudgeon, <laughs> isn't he? Um, anyway, uh, you're not really a curmudgeon either, but I know you want to be a curmudgeon, but you're you're a fake curmudgeon. You're a bit of a fake curmudgeon. Anyway, I'm Noah's a little bit of a curmudgeon. No, you don't you don't agree. Noah's making a face. Don't like self-identify as curmudgeonly. People constantly call me curmudgeonly, and I'm really not a curmudgeon. So maybe no one's a curmudgeon. I don't know. My old colleague, Bob McManus at the New York Post, there's a curmudgeon. There's, he's but a delightful person, but a curmudgeon. Okay, enough with this talk. Eliana, thank you for thank joining you. us. And for uh, Abe and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camera burning.